So we, last week, uh, as, we, as the lesson four, we're still following up on that um, leadership and authority after Muhammad. And uh, we're on the Shia. Now, understanding the Shia, if you remember, we talked about there's Sunni, there's Shia. There's a smaller sect that actually was just in the news. So if you watch what's been going on in the news lately, there was this, also the Sufi, which is the smallest of the three um uh, Muslim sects, and if you um, in Egypt, so if you were paying attention in Egypt, there was a, a mosque that was uh, some terrorist attacked in the Sinai Peninsula. And Sinai is like the this part here, so this little wedge in the blue is the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, so there was a Egypt's been having a problem there in this area with uh, uh, an Islamic um, insurgency for lack of better terms, that's, uh, you would think it would actually, you know, because Israel is right here in the white, so you would think that there'd be some kind of issue there with Israel, but actually this Islamic insurgency that's centered in the Sinai has actually been attacking Egypt, uh, the nation of Egypt, attacking different targets in Egypt for about the past five or six years. A couple years ago, they shot up a tourist resort. Um, There's a lot of, so if you, uh, for instance, so there's a, there's a couple of really nice tourist resorts in the Sinai. If you're a diver, you may have heard of this uh, diving resort called the Blue Hole uh, in the Sinai. It's, it's like one of those world, you know, world-class destinations if you're a diver. Um, but anyhow, uh, there was a uh, Sufi mosque. Uh, you know, they went in there, killed a bunch of people, um, stormed it. I think there were at least a dozen or more gunmen that went in. You know, just uh, killed everybody, killed a lot of the people there. Um, and so that is a so uh, you know understanding the different groups and why. So when we try to you know as thinking at our uh, from our standpoint here in America, you know we think Muslims are Muslims. There's there's just they're all Muslims. There's no difference. But you know they're understanding the different groups, how they, what they believe, how they view each other. Uh, helps us to understand well why is this happening? Why are these why are Muslims attacking other Muslims in a mosque? You know, why is that okay in Islam? You know, why is it okay for why does one group of Muslims believe it's okay to actually go into a mosque and shoot others? Uh, and and so um, you know, as we go through some of this stuff with the Shia, the Shia have been targets of this kind of attack for a long time, right from the beginning. And and we'll talk a little bit about that, but you know uh, so a lot of this stuff is actually in the news uh, currently. Um, so as this quote, I read this last week, the civil war in which Ali was defeated has had many important consequences for the subsequent history of the Middle East. Quite apart from the emergence of Shiism as a political movement, it also affected the geographic and ethnic distribution of the population. So we talked about, you know, there was a, a lot of the Yemeni uh, followers and right after Muhammad, some of his uh, early followers who were um, went moved up into Medina, then settled into Iraq after the and that's why Iraq and they were the foundations for uh, the Shia population in Iraq and why Iraq to this day is predominantly Shia and just so understanding where why it looks the way it does. So this this green here is the Shia region. 
uh, and why is there this surrounded, you know, the Sunni is all the blue, and why is there this kind of swath of, of Shia right in the middle? How did they get there? What is the problem? Is there a difference? You know, what, what is the difference? Uh, what is what we're trying to understand a little bit more today. Uh, we talked last week. Here's, so here's a picture. This is Dearborn. Uh, as I said, right mm-hmm. off of Greenfield. They do this uh, march every year. So this is a commemoration of uh, the martyring of um, Muhammad's grandson, Hussein. So there's this holiday every year that they march. And you can see the women are all dressed in black. Everybody, it's actually a holiday that's like a mourning holiday. So everyone is chanting, um, crying out. It's a very emotional event. People are all dressed in black. Uh, the flags, uh, uh, Hussein, yeah, Hussein flag is what you'll, you'll see. Actually, you see these. If you drive down, for instance, Warren and Dearborn, you'll see these flags hanging on mosque, the Shia mosque in this, on the street. Um, you can't see them here, but a lot of uh, what they're wearing commemorates Hussein. Uh, and actually, if you hear that name, if you have know anybody named Hussein, you know immediately that they're Shia. So the Sunnis don't name their kids uh, Hussein. Um, so having acknowledged that ongoing Shia-Sunni conflict and its importance in understanding the Middle East as a whole, we want to look at some basic beliefs, some practices of Shia Muslims. Uh, as we discussed, Abu Bakr, if we remember we go back, uh, was chosen as the first caliph through consensus. It's, I'll write it on the board. You don't have to know it. Probably will. But just so you... <coughs> This uh, concept of ijma, uh, consensus. The community basically agreed, came together. The Islamic community, after Muhammad dies, says, you know, we agree that Abu Bakr should be the leader of the community. The Shia, that is, then they believe that what should have happened was that for Ali uh, to be chosen as the leader of the community, since they believe he was chosen by Muhammad himself, during Muhammad's last pilgrimage to Mecca. So there's this event that happens right before Muhammad dies. Um, I won't bother you with the, the details. I should probably write it just so you guys. Stuff. Uh, so that's the, the area. Ghadir um, Qum is the was the city or the region that they uh, where this all happens. And so there's this event that in the history of Shia and Sunni. This is kind of like the the key event, the decisive what what happens here uh, for determining the Sunni and Shia and this conflict. Uh, the events and the pronouncements made at that time are not disputed. So there's no question on what Muhammad said or what what was actually, what that he did say something to Ali. So he made some kind of pronouncement. Uh, both sides agree that they, he was saying something and, and making note of Ali at this time. That basically they declare, Muhammad and publicly declares before everybody, uh, and I'll use the term because, uh, the Arabic term because it's in, uh, it's ambiguous. So he says, he's whose maula, that's the Arabic term, I am, Ali is his maula. So this Arabic term maula, and I think it's on your sheet. Um, 
She has believed that this was a clear declaration for Ali to lead the community. Sunnis hold that it was merely that all Muslims should hold Ali in esteem and affection. So basically, um, maula, that Arabic term, is interpreted as an ally or slave master. So this, this term in Arabic has like a dozen different meanings. Uh, and if that's the, the hard, one of the hard parts about learning Arabic is that, you know, uh, an Arabic dictionary, when you look up a root, a three-letter root, which is the basis for every word in Arabic, there's usually uh, at least eight, seven or eight, and sometimes 12, up to 12 uh, definitions for a word. Uh, depending on the form. So these all... Um, so, there's this... They debate about what this... What uh, Muhammad meant by using this term. Master. Uh, the Shia believe that he was saying that the Maula, he was interpreting that term as he is the rightful leader. So the difference. He's basically saying that uh, the Sunnis believe... He was saying... Ali is a ally to me. He's an ally. He's a he's a great leader of uh, or not great leader. He's a master over you know his slaves, which was not like a you know it was not like a derogatory thing. Whereas the the Shia believe he's actually pronouncing him. He's a great leader. He he should be the next leader of the community. Uh, Ali, as we covered, was eventually chosen as caliph. Remember, he was chosen as the fourth caliph. Uh, but the belief of being usurped by Abu Bakr immediately after uh, Muhammad's death meant that the circumstances are now set for this resistance that that'll take place. So this resistance, then, excuse me, this resistance that starts right there at that a key event, right after Muhammad's death. So within a dozen years. Um, initially took the form of a rival party within the larger community. So kind of like, I don't know, kind of like a shadow government. If you're familiar with uh, British, uh, British, the, their political system, you know, you have like the ruling party and then you have a shadow government ready to come in, the opposing, you know, so if conservatives are in power, the liberals will have a, a complete government, they call it the shadow government, ready to come in and take power if if the party fails. So if, Whoever's the prime minister at the time and his party fails, the shadow government comes in. They don't have prime minister, foreign, they have the entire government ready to go. They don't do anything, but they basically build this, uh, this shadow structure. And that's kind of what was going on. So you have this, um, rival party within the larger Islamic community. There's no effort was made at that time to openly resist. So they're not openly resisting. They're not pushing against the power structure. Um, but it was clear there was there was displeasure from all of the uh, the Shiite community, the Shiite Ali, the partisans of Ali, as I should be on your sheet. That's what that term means. Shiite is is Arabic, translated partisans or, or uh, followers of Ali. Shia since that time have declared that what transpired then, when Abu Bakr was chosen over Ali, was against Muhammad's and and. You know, by extension, against God's will, and that those men and the ones that follow them—that is, the Sunnis—are uh, living in error. So this fact, this fact arises from the office of the Imam. And so, if you're familiar at all with, ever heard anything with the Shia, they 
they had this this leaders are called imams. And I'm sure you probably have heard at least heard this term before. <coughs> imams. Um, if uh, and if there's any questions, uh, stop me. So I'm just gonna, I'm just going to try to push through. The imam, then the spiritual leader, who Shia believe is akin to a divine institution. Uh, Ali was known as the friend of God uh, to the uh, both to the Sunni and the Shia. They both look at Ali as in a positive light. Ali, along with the family of the Prophet uh, Fatima, who was the daughter of Muhammad. If you remember, I mentioned she was the one who actually eventually was going to cause a lot of problems. Fatima's there's a there's a whole. She actually starts this resistance movement against the Islamic community with Fatima, Muhammad, Ali, Hassan, and Hussein, who was martyred, are all the, the, the what is known as the, the family of the Prophet. <coughs> uh, and other Imams, and so this is the, the kind of mystical element that the Shia believes. So the family of the Prophet, so all those people I just named, and all the Imams, the, the prominent Imams, Existed with God before creation, so there's a there's a it's not a they're not divine in the same way it was God because there's only God you know that's a central core belief to all Muslims shares that there's God there's no God and God doesn't share His divinity with anybody but they believe that these the household of the prophets so there's actually stories of you know God conversing with the household of the Muhammad and the other members of his household and these imams. Before time began, before creation, um, you know, it's, uh, stories in the hadiths, these uh, sto- uh, religious stories that, that surround the Islamic community. Uh, so they're privy to secret knowledge, knowledge that is not only uh, hidden from normal normal individuals, but is necessary to truly understand the Quran as intended. So the text of the Quran itself is not sufficient because it contains hidden meanings and apparent contradictions. So think about that. The text of the Quran itself is is not sufficient for Muslims. That's the Shia belief. You can't just go off what the text says because there's things hidden there. And you, you the only way, you can't just study it to get that out. You actually need someone with secret knowledge to get that knowledge out that is necessary. So it's not like it's hidden knowledge that is just helpful if we get it out. It's actually hidden knowledge that is necessary for Muslims to understand so you actually need these imams to get this material out um, the knowledge of such a book cannot be grasped so this is a, here's a, a quote cannot be grasped fully by the norms of the ordinary philosophy the text must be taken back to the next level on which its true meaning is manifest. <coughs> What Tawil, that is, that's this idea. Um, the Shia, when they, they study this out, Tawil, so basically means taking the text like a hidden meaning. Sure. Um, do all the Amis, even today, possess this 
quality of being able to have existed? Yeah, great question. So, uh, and we're going to get to what, um, yes, but with a caveat, because they believe the final, the imams all, they believe every imam, so they were, depending on which Shia you are, so there's some that are, they call them Twelvers, like literally in the Arabic they use the word for twelve, so these Twelvers believe there's twelve imams, that there's just twelve, and the twelfth imam was hidden, taken away, <coughs> and they believe this, they call it occultation, which is like, uh, you know, the hit being hidden. So the twelfth imam was taken away off, out of the out of the earth and hidden for the end day, the last days, day of judgment. He'll come back, so kind of like uh, you know what we would, uh, yeah. So following along, yeah. Go ahead. Follow up question: What if these imams contradict each other? Well, the imam. So how it works, there's no imams today. So there's either okay. seven, yeah, so there's there was some that believe there were seven imams, some that believe there was 12. Okay. But they all, that 12th imam was probably, I think, in the 13th or 14th century, I don't, I don't remember the exact year, that he was taken out and he just disappeared. And so there's no more imams existing today, uh, and there won't be until the ju- Day of Judgment. That's when the so 12th imam returns. Right, right. Because there are imams. Right. But not okay. not the not, not on the same, the same level, sense. right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's uh, like just that they're leaders of the community, but those who can understand this tawil and understanding the hidden meaning of the text. But all of these people, they actually wrote, so they and they would choose their successor. So it's like you know they chose the person that would follow them, and they they recorded everything that they as they were going through the text, they would record this stuff. So they have. These guys were prolific writers, okay. you know. So the imams chose the next imam, right? Yeah, mm. which is also because it's it's a, a excuse me. The reason being is because you remember there supposedly all of the imams existed before creation, so they all know each other. So I, the idea is that you can identify when you meet the other when you meet one. Here in the flesh, they were able to say, "Okay, this one, he's the next imam." Uh, so, Even though they're all dead and gone now. Well, I'm saying back when they were still, you know, when when the process was happening, you know, when when the imams were there was an imam still around and he would choose his successor. Basically, it was because he he could do that because he they, they possessed this hidden knowledge. They were friends with God in a way that normal people weren't. How many other books do they have to read to get the heavenly meanings? So it's not a matter of reading books. They they believe they just have this they have this knowledge that's inherent uh, with them because they existed before time. Okay. So God gave them this knowledge back before He created the world. Okay, but you said there weren't any more imams around right. doing that. So how do oh, they get the, how yeah. they learning now? Right. Uh, so they basically, they just, I, I don't know the exact number of the books that they have, but they have the writings of these imams that they study. So they do have all Correct. of that. Correct, yeah, yeah. And um, some of these imams, even though they're Shia, we're talking about the Shia, the Sunni actually recognize. So there's one Jafar Sadiq who actually both sides recognize as this great Muslim leader. You know, the, the Shia basically elevate them to a higher level. But both sides recognize him, and both sides will read his material. Basically, 
it's it's kind of like a commentary on the text, but it's more than that, you know, because they're they're dealing with not just with the text, but also, you know, how to live, how to order your life, and that kind of thing. Um, any other questions? So great questions, and well, some of the stuff we we are going to get to a little bit a uh, little bit more in depth. So what Tawil refers to is the hidden meaning of the text. Shia theologians believe that the Quran contains an explicit meaning that is something that we all can read. You know, we any one of us could pick up the Quran and get the explicit meaning. <clears throat> but I also believe in an inner esoteric meaning. So each and every verse of the Quran has multiple levels of meaning. So this this uh, person I just mentioned, Jafar al-Sadiq, who was the sixth imam, said that the book of God contains four things. The announced expression, the illusion, so the announced expression is the, the outermost, what everyone's going to be able to understand. The illusion, the hidden meaning related to the supersensible worlds, and the spiritual truths. So that spiritual truths is that deepest layer no one else can understand. The literary expression, then, that, that first first layer is for common people. The second layer, the illusion, is for the religious elites. The hidden meaning is for the friends of God. And the spiritual truths are for the prophets. So what this means, practically, is that the office of the imam is just as important as the office of the prophet. Raising Ali and the imams uh, to the level... Of Muhammad, so we talked about the importance of Muhammad in the religion. So for the Shia, Ali and these imams are just as important, and so that's beginning to under, help us understand why the Sunni and the Shia, why they, why the Sunni look at the Shia as say and call them not true believers, because now they're elevating a whole group of characters uh, alongside Muhammad. This is a, a practical point of divergence between the Sunni and the Shia. The Sunni operate under the assumption that only God knows the hidden meaning of the text. So both sides believe in there is a hidden meaning to the Quran. Uh, the Sunni believe God knows it. The Shia believe that the that God and the Imams know what that means. Another point of difference between Sunni and Shia is, is related to the Quran itself. So as I said before, both Sunni and Shia use the Quran that Uthman, remember we talked about Uthman is the one who standardizes, standardizes the Quran. They both use that same Quran. Shia believe that it has been altered by changing the order of things. Proof of which they say is evident in how narratives don't seem to flow naturally. So that's, that's you know, their claim. Arising from this view of the Quran, the Shia adopted a practice known as Taqiyah, so probably some of you have heard this concept before. Uh, if you haven't, if you read or you know watch some YouTube videos or you read something written by Christians about Muslims, you'll hear this concept. You know, um, this idea. So in my while I was in while I was in Ohio State, I never once heard this term. But then I moved to Dearborn and I heard people talking about it constantly. Not Muslims, but I heard it. 
Christians talking about it constantly. So I, was, I had no idea what what it was because we didn't cover it when I was in uh, college. And part of it is the understanding because Christians believe that, you know, what we'll talk about this, but the Christ, most Christians, if you are familiar with this, you, you think all Muslims practice this. You know, and they basically just say that what taqiyya means is that Muslims can lie. They can lie to other Christians. You know, they can lie to people outside their faith. Um, this is actually a, a Shia, uh, a Shia um, uh, tactic, I guess you could say. It's the simulation. It's the concept of call. Was there is a question? Com- sorry, is it common? Is it common nowadays? Uh, I well, let me let me talk. Let me flow through this, and then we'll we'll get to that question because I think that'll answer part of it. So takia is in formal. It's called dissimulation or concealment of religious beliefs. So, if you were defining it in a you know uh, a real way, it's just concealment of religious beliefs. It's not. I guess you, it, it's lying, but it, it's basically concealing what you believe. So this was practiced in order to protect or hide one's religious beliefs under dangerous conditions. So a secondary meaning is to keep that inner meaning secret. So we talked about the Quran has this outer meaning and inner meaning. So the secondary meaning to taqiyah is that you're basically hiding that inner meaning away from others. So that practice arises out of the uh, the, the 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 era of protect, uh, persecution that surrounds the Shia from the early times. So we talked about early on the Shia uh, are persecuted by the Sunni, you know, and that's why this this holiday, uh, the martyring of Hussein, is is you know he he's killed by the the Sunni, you know what what would become. Uh, the Umayyad would eventually become the Umayyad Empire, but they were basically he's slaughtered along with his family members. Um, and I'll, I'll read. I have some uh, uh, some material I'll read about this. So early on, you know, the the Shia are being persecuted by the Sunni because the Sunnis always out, outnumber the Shia. So they have this practice, this taqiyya that they use to either deny the truth of who they are. Or to deny the inner meaning, to hide the meaning of the text from people who sh- they believe shouldn't know it. And uh, so, it was probably why it's widespread depending on where you are. I mean, I think most if if you were to ask a Shia theologian, they would say that it's not something that's being practiced, you know, in the workplace. It's not something where you're trying to lie to get ahead of people. You know, we seem to think in this country that that's what, you know, this concept allows Muslims to just be false to ev- about everything. Uh, and sometimes you'll hear it talked about that way. You know, Muslims can lie; they, they don't have to tell the truth. Um, but this is a, a really a Shia belief, a, a Shia practice, and it was meant to. It, it arose out of this uh, condition of persecution that, that just surrounds uh, them in every country. Because remember, if we looked at the map. There's this just small swath of Shia uh, in the middle, surrounded by Sunni countries, uh, and, and so they've always been under this persecution. Um, <clears throat> uh, 
us. So the persecution that has followed the Shia from the very beginning of their existence has contributed to the, the Shia religious expression through this uh, fetishization of mourning. So Shia, Shia women across the Middle East wear black whenever out in public. So when they just always are in black. You know, they don't wear bright colors like you see in a lot of... Um, if you go to Syria, if you go to Lebanon, um, even... Uh, in Palestine, you know, women wear either their, you know, they may wear the headscarf, but it'll be brightly colored pinks and blues and whatever. You know, they'll match it. I know I went to school with a girl. She had like, you know, you could buy like, you know, she would coordinate, like girls would coordinate their purses. I mean, she would coordinate her headscarves with her, her outfits. Um, but the Shia are always in black. So here's a picture. This is in 2016 in Karbala. Which is where the dot. So it's just south of Baghdad. Here is in the center of Iraq. <coughs> Karbala is where the red dot is. And so this is the uh, the central point. This is where Hussein was martyred uh, back in the, in the you know, I think it's the 11th century. So for a long time under Saddam Hussein, no one was able to commemorate this holiday, <coughs> even though it happened in Iraq. They weren't allowed. The Shias weren't allowed to celebrate this holiday. 2016, they had two million people show up. Because uh, it was just after Saddam fell, they were able to start to celebrate the holiday again. So this is in Karbala. And you can see all the women, how similar they are. We just looked at that picture of Dearborn. And very similar. You wouldn't know really there was a difference. Uh, all, all black, the green colors, that's something, the color is uh, significant in Islam. But the black, that mourning, uh, Shia women always wear uh, as an outward sign of mourning and identification with the martyring of Imam Hussein. So that major Shia holiday, this one that they're celebrating here, Ashura, Ashura, commemorates the events that surround Hussein's being killed. So this holiday is marked by lamentation and in Iraq, uh, self-flagellation. So sometimes you'll see if you ever heard about this holiday, it's the one where they walk around and they'll whip themselves or they'll cut their heads and they'll be bleeding, walk, marching in the street to commemorate this holiday. I wasn't going to... I thought about putting a picture and I thought, no, I'm not going to put a picture there. But the guys, men will march through the street uh, with leather whips and they'll just march through the whole, you know, for miles and just, you know, slapping their back until it's raw and they'll just be, you know... Uh, or in... in um, Central Asia or uh, South Asia, they'll actually the, the men will cut their heads with, with with knives, and so they'll you know their faces will be covered in blood. So it's this holiday that commemorates this martyr. Yeah, Joe. This uh, self mutilation, obviously, they're beating themselves. Is that a form of a punishment themselves for? Yeah, no, it's it's basically uh, identification with. Okay, identification yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you actually, so it's not unique. To Shia, I mean, if I've gone to Jerusalem and uh, you know, I spent a lot of time there, and you'll see um, pilgrims from a lot of uh, South American countries. You usually see them there, South American, uh, where Catholicism is really strong, and they'll be carrying big wooden crosses through the street at Old uh, City. And there's actually sometimes they'll actually volunteer to be nailed up on a cross to to identify with Christ. So there's actually, yeah. So there's there's people that actually will do this. Not it's not something unique. This identification of of the humiliation and the 
the violence of this event is not something unique just to the Shia. Mm. Uh, we actually do it in Christianity. Uh, we don't. But <laughs> some groups do it in Christianity. Uh, any other questions or? Uh, Why do anything? the women only wear black? What's that? Why do the women? It's uh, so it's the idea of just being like at a funeral. So women, uh, uh, the women in Middle Eastern culture, they always wear black to funerals and stuff. You know, all but like why do the women have to be completely covered and the guys can just kind of do as they want? Uh, so that's a whole. That's a completely different. Yeah, that's a different issue. Um, Let's save that one. But no, it's it's true, right? So why is it? And uh, you see that across. I mean, you see it in Dearborn, uh, and you see it especially with the Yemeni. The Yemeni women are, you know, they have to wear uh, the full the full on outfits. And you saw this in Afghanistan. You know, they wore the. You probably saw the burkas, the blue light blue burkas that they wear in Afghanistan, where right? they can't even see your eyes. Um, and the men, they can wear whatever they want, you know, and. Uh, you just it doesn't make any sense, but it's it's tied to how women are viewed in the culture, and this is a this is has something that's not uh, not tied strictly to Islam. This is Arab culture. This is Middle Eastern culture, because you see a little bit of this even with Judaism. The ultra Orthodox in Judaism do something similar. The women have to be very conservatively dressed. They have to, you know, they wear wigs because they don't want to show their hair uh, in public, and so. It's something that it's broader than just Islam, and it's tied to Middle Eastern culture. Yeah, I was going to say, by contrast, when I went to Malaysia, they have uh, a large Muslim minority there. And um, I worked with some young girls, mostly in their early 20s, and they would wear a headscarf, but other than that, they wore jeans and T-shirts and dressed just like... I mean, probably more conservatively than us, but pretty similar. I mean, they wouldn't wear, like, things that were too revealing, but, you know, they looked... modest. Right, they were modest, but they weren't wearing... (coughs) Yeah, I mean, in my experience, you know, driving... I mean, I've been in Jerusalem, and in East Jerusalem, which is predominantly Palestinian, you see girls that have headscarves but are, like... You know they're they're wearing things that are almost more revealing than you would and tight, just as tight as you would see in any, you know, anywhere here in in the West. But they just have their hair covered. <laughs> you know, so it's it's like you're almost thinking, well, everything's already out there. You know, why at this point, why are you just covering your hair? Um, so. Uh, you know, it's it's something that's deeper. It's 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 more Arab culture. Why women women are viewed as the vessels of honor in the family. You know, always women. The the honor of the entire family, the honor of the clan, is somehow tied up with women. So, how a woman acts is reflective of what your entire family. And so, this actually uh, has a big deal to play for. You know, when we think about missions, we were taught. You know, Lisa and I were. We were uh, down at Kennedy School, and they were talking about this. I mean, just why, uh, <clears throat> you know, in traditional circles, they don't like to have women be missionaries. You know, in a lot of circles, you actually won't, they won't even call women missionaries. A lot of the circles that we actually are in won't have a woman as a missionary. They'll call her a field worker, or they'll call her something else, but they can't call her a missionary because of, you know, ecclesiastical issues. Um, 
but in, in Arab culture, women are, are, you know, it's 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 a weird thing because on one hand they're secluded, they're they're separated. There's gender separation to an extreme. Women can't go out in certain areas, or they can't go to certain places without men. But in those realms where women predominate are predominant, they they play that they play the key role in the house and the family uh, among you know with children. They're 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 the the key to the family. So by not you know, in, in thinking about outreach, thinking about evangelism towards Muslims, when you don't include women, when you don't allow for women to be equal partners in the ministry, you're basically, you're limiting your success, your ability to have any success because of how important the central role that women play in Arab culture, even though they're, mis- they're made to wear the hijab. I mean, they're made to, in a lot of ways, um, treated uh, as second-class citizens. Uh, but the reality is, uh, in, in many of the Arab countries, Iran, Iraq, you know, most most Arab countries, women play prominent roles. So in almost every um, independence movement, modern independence, so post 1960s, so as, as Arab countries are emerging out of colonialism, Fran- you know, Algeria against France, Libya against Italy, in almost every one of these circumstances. Women are playing prominent roles in the in the resistance. So women are actually freedom fighters. They're leaders and military leaders. They're uh, you know they're playing prominent roles in the government. You know Iraq under Saddam Hussein had like the highest level of women woman literacy and college graduation rates in across the entire Middle East. You know women uh, had just num- you know Saudi Arabia has. You know the women are mistreated, but they also are like the, they're more highly educated than the men because they, you know, they're not allowed to go and get jobs. They're not employed in the workforce, but they go abroad and overseas and they get these, you know, bachelor's degrees in engineering and they come home and they can't do anything with it. But the women are, are, are just an important part uh, of the society and they're viewed, they're wrapped up uh, with the honor. But that it also has that negative aspect that we talked about honor killings. You know, so when when a woman just dis- when they perceive there's been a slight of dis- of honor, so if a woman is caught talking to a married man or a single man, she's going to bear the brunt of the damage. She's going to bear the violence. The man's not going to have any anything done to him. It's going to be the woman that has to bear all the the problem. So does she have like more rules? But like, do the women have more rules compared to the men? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, they do. But even across. Across the board, you know, it's patriarchal society. So men, it's it's uh, gender dominated, but it's also age dominated. So what that means is that, practically speaking, <coughs> the man, the oldest man, is in charge of the family. What he says rules. <coughs> but the way Arab culture or Middle Eastern culture tends to be is, the man is not always. Most of the time, he's not at home. He's out coffee shop. You know, if you ever travel around the Middle East, these they're out smoking hookah on the corner, or just hanging out, doing whatever. So the day-to-day running of the house, the family decisions, you know, who marries who, uh, the kids when they get married, the important economic decisions being made by the family is all being made by the matriarch of the family. You know, so she is, um, she wields uh, an incredible amount of power uh, within that structure. But there is more. There is a lot more um, expected, a lot more pressure, a lot more rules, a lot of things that they can't do 
uh, in compared to men. Uh, so there's no denying that fact. Uh, yeah. and then we'll... uh, it's a quick one, I, I think. Um, I heard though too that there were there were some limitations on, on men that like um, at like restaurants or even like at a McDonald's that where they their limit on, on where they can sit that there's like a family yeah. seating and then there's seating for single men too where they can't sit by women. Yep. So that would be a restriction on, on oh, absolutely. men too, right? Yeah. And so a lot of these kingdom a lot of the places, especially the Gulf, they have uh, where the gender segregation is really severe. They'll set up certain places family only, and so men can't go there alone. And uh, I was just telling somebody a story about this because they were talking about um, there's a evangelical movement where they'll use um, I was hate putting this on the recording. It, it's like they use their phone Bluetooth on their phone to broadcast and share the gospel tracks with people instead of papers things that can be traced. You're basically sharing it via Bluetooth to another person on their mobile because everybody has mobiles there. Um, and I was saying that I know, uh, I remember reading an article about uh, in the Gulf area, in the uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and Oman and Qatar and some of these countries, uh, they'll close the mosques, down, or the, the malls. They have these huge, huge decadent malls. But they'll have like two or three nights of the week or just family night. So single men can't go into the mall. Unless you're with a family or you're with your wife, you can't even go to the mall. You can't. So the men... Uh, is, this was like a dating thing. So men would line up outside the mall, like within like 50 feet, all the guys, single guys. And as the girls are going, because single girls can go in. So single girls and families, they can go in and they can relax. And so as they're going in, guys are like flirting via Bluetooth on their phone, just like randomly throwing out, foot, you know, and hoping to try to... Like fishing. Yeah, exactly. It literally, it was fishing. But it was, just, it, was a, it was this crazy article talking about this idea that because there are certain areas and certain times and certain places that are just closed off to single men uh, and that women uh, women and families that are allowed to feel you know to, to feel more comfortable because the reality is is we look at this and we think ah, you know that's not right or it's, there's something wrong with it but even Christian women in these cultures uh, and I experienced this firsthand don't feel comfortable Sitting in the sitting in rooms with men, you know they 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 naturally they'll do it and they it's not like they're tolerating or they're biting their tongue, but if you give them the chance, they're going to take the women are going to go into another area and just right. do their own thing, and the men are going to sit and they're going to you know it's not like you know you're going to be doing uh, you know the burping and the stuff in the one room and but it's just how it, it usually breaks down is women feel more comfortable in that culture in the Middle East, women feel more comfortable with women, men feel more comfortable with men and they're just going to separate segregate themselves naturally whether Christian, Muslim, Jew uh, that just tends to be how it breaks down um, so uh, you have a question well I was wondering um, so women knowingly are not employable is there a caste system like there is in India how, how do these women go to another country to study where does the money come from yeah, uh, great question. So I wouldn't say, hopefully I didn't give that impression because it's not that they're not employable. They're just, um, so the difference, so we talk about feminism, feminist movements here in the States. So when you talk, if I were to say, uh, what is one of the, like the number one issue feminists in this country are, are dealing with? Equal pay. Equal pay. I, I was actually thinking more along like, uh, 
you know, reproduction, you know, reproductive issues, you know, like abortion and these things, right? So that's usually one of the big ones. Equal pay is now a bigger, uh, becoming bigger, but it was always, uh, for a long time, it was, you know, a woman's control of her own body, you know, and, and making those decisions, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade, those kind of things. In the Middle East, feminism, it's a different, it doesn't, you know, so they're not debating should a woman have a right to choose to have an abortion or not, because that's, nobody is looking for that choice and that, and because it's conservative culture, religious culture. Um, and so the big issue there is uh, representation in the workforce. They don't have any pay gap. Generally in the Middle East and most Arab countries, no, there's no pay gap. So women and men across the board, usually if, if a woman works a job, that a man can work, she's going to make the same amount as a man across the board. Almost 100% of the time uh, in the Arab Middle East, uh, women make the same as men. The problem is underrepresentation in the workforce, and and this is particularly a problem because women are usually better trained than the men because they're they're you know, I mean I think even here you you see women tend to be better students than men, uh, so women. Are highly trained, highly degreed, going overseas. The money is coming a lot of times depending on the country. So Saudi Arabia, the Gulf countries, the co- governments actually pay these pay for the tuitions of the of the women a lot of times. Right. So they get scholarships from their home countries. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that area, if you're looking at the Levant, North Africa, it's wealthy families sending their uh, their families abroad. And, you know, if you remember, Europe is just across the Mediterranean. So a lot of them will go over to Europe and get educate, European edu- uh, educations uh, and, and things like that. So um, it's not, there's no caste system for sure. Uh, it's just basically because of the patriarchal system and how jobs are, are, are given out. Uh, and this was important. We, t- we talked about this. This is also connected to the issue of family when a person disconnects from their family. So say a Muslim comes out, embraces Christ, follows, becomes a follower, and they have to leave their family, and they're no longer able to be part of their family. Well, their job, their career was tied to their family. Who was going to get them that job? It was going to be their family. So how a woman normally gets work, it's usually not through you know, going into... Uh, a Craigslist ad looking in the job, the job wanted, or Glassdoor, or any of these, you know, it's, they, those don't really exist for women in the Middle East. It's, you know, knowing somebody who, through the family, that can get them a job at this place. Mm-hmm. And so, usually, they're typically, the problem is they want to give those jobs, the, prob- the, the connection with underrepresentation tends to be an issue of the men have to care for a family. So we have to give the jobs, save jobs for men, because they're the primary bread, breadwinner for these families. That's really not the case anymore, but that's still the mentality, mm-hmm. is that we have to give these jobs to the men. And we, so if there's a man and a woman, let's give the job to the man, because he's probably got a family to support right. uh, and things like that. And this woman should probably not be out here working. There's this old school mentality. She should probably not be here working. She should be... Mm-hmm. Do married women work or just single women? Sometimes. It depends. In more professional areas, yes. And in, in actually, they will, uh, it sets up a weird dynamic, though. It usually encounters a lot of resistance from men, the man of the family. There's a lot of times in, like, 
for instance, the Gaza Strip, there's a high level, uh, a large number of women, married women working, mm-hmm. because they're men, the men can't find work, or they they can't find the work that they were willing to do. You know, they, they're, they're not willing to lower themselves or whatever to get to work a particular type of job, whereas the women are just thinking, we need to eat, and I'm going to go out there and work. And so the women will go out and get into the job force and work whatever job they can get, and the man will stay home, and then he's now emasculated because he's supposed to be taking care of the family. So it sets up a, a dynamic, uh, but... It happens. It happens uh, more and more. What's that? But it's their own fault. It's true. I mean, and you see that sometimes here and even in the West. I mean, even in our own country. You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. Um, But it messes with, you know, it messes with, even when I, you know, when I was in seminary, Lisa was the primary breadwinner. And we were thankful for the job, but, you know, it always kind of like, I should be... I should be working more and making money or something. Joe, you had your hand up for a while. Yes. Um, a good point was brought up uh, about families. At what age range are men and women required to be married by? Yeah. Because if you're talking about these single guys, are they supposed to be married by 25 or 30? And if you're not married by 30, what happens in that point? Good question. So this is another issue. Probably uh, most is going to get upset. But uh, <laughs> the women, so 23, 24, 25, if a woman's not married normally, there's a, there's a problem. Men can be like 40, 45, and they're, it's okay, you know. And, but the, the funny thing is, is a lot, of, you know, in Arab culture, or Middle Eastern culture, I think it's broader, Middle Eastern culture, people don't leave their home until they're married. So it's not this idea of like, I'm, I'm reached 30 or I'm 25 and I can't live in my parents' basement where I need to get a job and just move out. Mm-hmm. People will just live at home until they're married. So, you know, you have a 40-year-old guy, his mom's out there hustling the street trying to find a wife for this guy. Because that's who, that's who finds the, that's in traditional Middle Eastern culture, that's how marriages happen. It's, it's the parents are out searching constantly trying to marry their, their kids off. Um, so for a woman, it tends to be a younger age. So early 20s, it should be thinking marriage. The, the more rural you get, the younger the age gets. So as you get into like Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan, these, these Central Asian countries, these Islamic countries there, you know, you're looking at, you know, 16, 17. And still the men could be 35 and, you know, uh, so yeah, there's, there's some issues there. Good question. Uh, was there another? I thought I saw. Um, it was my understanding that divorce is allowed in the Arab yeah. community. How does that fit in? And you know, is the is that a lot of the reasoning behind the women having to work is because the the men left? Uh, sometimes it's not. Or are the statistics low for divorce? Or it's. The statistics are low, but it's, I don't think it's it, the, they're accurate. So I think it happens, and it's it's easy because marriage in the in most Islamic countries is a civil matter. So it's not like a it's not handled in the religious. People don't go to a mosque to get married. They go to the mosque to celebrate afterwards, but usually they get married in a civil setting, and then they go. Christians are different. Christians in the Middle East are different. They're getting married in churches out of tradition, but marriages tend to be a civil matter. Divorce is relatively easy to happen. 
it doesn't happen that often, but you know, this is one of the things that Islam actually was supposed to, you know, Muslims will look at Islam and say this was a positive term because now we protected women in a way that they weren't protected before, even in, in the event of divorce. This doesn't hold, doesn't hold, this is like theory versus practice. In theory, it was supposed to make so women weren't disadvantaged if a, in case of divorce, but the reality is it, it, it still happened. And they were still, you know, left without anything. What ends up happening is they have to return back to their family, uh, you know, across the board. And they're, and a lot of times, unlike here, a lot of times the men will, if the man wants, he's getting the kids. There's no question. He's taking kids. If he wants the kids, he gets the kids. There's no, almost across the board in Muslim countries, if, if the courts are going to give the, the man the kids. Because of the role that the man plays is seen in the structure. He's going to be able to support them. It's his namesake. You know, the woman leaves the man, her family. To, you know, so it's just, it's how that's, it's structured. So how does that work out in the United States courts? Because it seems like the United States, the woman is basically favored. Yeah, and it, it, it does. No, it ha- and so the, it's, that only holds in the Middle East. Okay. So here, it's the same. So if you get divorced... You know, the courts here tend to favor giving the, if majority of the time they're going to give the woman, uh, the, you know, custody, and that's still the case here. Okay. So, yeah, it, it holds regardless. Um, let me just, uh, I wanted to read a couple passages from this book. So this book is a, it's, I, I used this when I was in undergrad, so this is pretty old, but it was a German guy who did some research in, in Iran in a Persian village. And he goes there, and he has a set of questions, and he asks, you know, old, young, educated, you know, uneducated, religious, secular, you know, working and not working, housewife, these same questions, and he, he correlates all this stuff, and I thought it was really good because it, it really gives insight into, you know, what we learn, the textbook answers to Islam versus what it show, how it shows up. So let me, uh, <clears throat> read some of this stuff. So speaking about Hussein. So he says, so he asked, how did Imam Hussein's martyrdom come about? So this is, this shows, uh, so this is gonna some, take some of you off, uh, catch you off guard. So in the miniature world, so this is the response he gets from the person, the, a trader, like a, you know, a, a person that works in a, like a bazaar, a craft person. In the miniature world, there was a couple of good deeds and a couple of evil deeds. The unbelievers like Umar and Uthman, remember these are the, the, the uh, second and third caliphs, and Yazid and Muawiyah and Abu Sufyan drank from the evil, the couple of evil deeds. The others chose the couple of good deeds. Abraham only moistened his lip. His family had troubles later. Jacob drank a little. He was burdened with separation from his kin. Job drank a little. So this shows you they they're familiar with the biblical stories to a degree. Job drank a little. His whole body was stricken with worms. The prophet, that is Muhammad, drank a tiny bit. For this he he later was hurt in the wars with Abu Jahal. When it was Imam Hussein's turn, he was ready to empty the whole cup. But Gabriel held his hand and said, It, it has its conditions. You have to give your you will have to give your head, he's beheaded, your wife will be led into captivity, your young people will be killed, your small child will be martyred, you will lose all your property, and even your bones will be crushed. 
under the host of horses. He says, I agree to it all, says Imam Hussein. But what will be the return for all this? Gabriel speaking in the name of God said, In return for your martyrdom, I will forgive the sins of your people, of your grandfather, and of the Shia, the partisans of your father. For the sake of your captivity, of your wife and the other wives, I will pardon the women. For the sake of Ali, Akbar, and Qasim, and the other youths, I will pardon the young men of the Prophet's people. For the sake of your child, I will pardon the children of your people. And he drank a couple of good deeds, and then they wrote a contract. And the Prophet, and Moses, and Jesus, and Abraham, all the 25 great prophets, and the five prophets who, who were sent a book, put their seal on it, and it was kept until the day of Ashura. So this idea, this connecting of Hussein's event in a bigger scale. It's not just something that happens like here in the ether, you know, like on this plane. It's, it's something that's hap- happening at a heavenly level and this connection with uh, what Imam Hussein's doing here. You said, uh, so he's asking uh, someone who's more educated here. You said if Hussein hadn't done this, this, this martyring, the religion itself wouldn't exist. So why should there be a religion? If there was no religion, everybody would run after women and everybody would rob and steal. Uh, wait, no, that's the wrong news. That's the wrong uh, wrong paragraph. Sorry. But as I said, so he says, this was when the this then was the purpose of Hussein's martyrdom. That is. Um, you know, so that he would take this cup of suffering and, and get forgiveness for the, his people. So that's an important concept. Forgiveness for sins now is tied to this person, Imam Hussein. So it's not just, you know, it, that's a pretty major concept here that the Shia believe and the Sunnis don't believe. It says, but as I said here again, is something which we do not fully understand. Why did Hussein go to Karbala? Why did, did he know he would be killed there or didn't he? If he didn't know, then why are we beating our chest for him? But if he knew, he should not have gone there. Reason does not allow one to endanger one's life. Reason tells you that fire burns, and if in spite of this you hold your hands in the fire, it is not a merit but a sin. Thus, if Hussein knew he would be killed, reason forbade him to go there. Why did he go against reason? It was love that carried him there. He knew what would happen, but he did it out of love toward God. As one gets drunk with wine and then is carried away with, by his passions, so there is another drunkenness, the drunkenness with God, the love of God. If it hadn't been for that love, the love which is higher than reason, Hussein, the son of Ali, would have done wrong in Karbala. So there's, again, this, this lifting up of this Hussein to a higher level, you know, almost to a, like a Christ-like level of his sacrifice having this signif- broader significance uh, over, over the whole... Thing. And then one last, one last quote. All right. It is said that by the blood of Imam Hussein, sins will be forgiven. So he asked this uh, very religious person in the village this question. There's no doubt about this. On the last day, when all the dead are brought before God, the Imam will come and say, Oh God, I have given my head as a sacrifice for your cause. You have to pardon those who are my people and who love me. Is absolutely certain that the Lord forgives everyone for whom the Prophet or the Imam Hussein intercedes. There is no doubt about this. All this is in the Quran. By myself, I would I would think this way. How many years ago was it that the Prophet left this world? One thousand three hundred years, and still has his words exist, firm and true. For instance, he said that I shouldn't eat anything sour when I have a cold, 
if I really get sick when I eat sour things, it shows his words are right. And they will be until the last day. How many millions of people were in the world after the prophet for the words of anyone else reign? And there is, there, where is the grave of Umar and Yazid? But to the graves of the Imam Hassan and Hussein come thousands of pilgrims every year. And recently a millionaire gave all his fortune to the Imam. From this it is evident that, that these stand very near to God and they can intercede for their people. So this idea that Imam Hussein, this, this person that they're commemorating here at this holiday, Ashura, and, and Karbala, across the world in the Shia, uh, Shia nations, uh, can intercede to God on their behalf. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an important concept to them, something completely different than you would have in Sunni uh, Islam, and, and something very... Um, and part of the reason why the Sunnis then now look at the Shia and say, you know, these people are heretics. They're, they have gone off deep end with their religion. Now it shows that we can actually, they're no longer believers. And so we can, why, that means why we can commit violence against them. So, uh, any last questions? Jordan, I know you had a bunch, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you ask them one of these days. But, uh, last question. As, as you guys are uh, striving to, of course, go back over as missionaries into that culture and those customs that they have, how do you how do you try to assimilate to a certain extent to become part of their um, community, but at the same time keep that distance enough that you're actually not following exactly what they're trying to do yeah. such as the example in Palestine when they had Christians that lived there but based off of that culture we're doing the same thing doesn't okay. so I think part of the issue is that you, it's different for every culture you have to look at where you're trying to reach whether it's Dearborn, Michigan or where we're going in the West Bank or Iraq or Syria or Egypt and just see what what is in the culture what do these things represent You know, because you're going to have all these things occurring you know things that are Islamic, that are Islamic by tradition, that are Islamic by, you know, being written in the Quran. You know, how do I? You're evaluating. Uh, for one, it's just looking for ways to build trust, and that's why I was saying, you know, with women, why it's important for women to be there to be full partners in the ministry because, realistically, that's how you're that's your door to families is, is the women in your family, uh, being part of the community, building trust, and then. Looking and seeing, okay, well, what, what can we, you know, do we, for instance, I don't know, uh, change how, what day we worship on? Is that is that a big deal or do we is it a minor deal? Is it do we greet other Muslims with Islamic greetings when we see them or do we avoid that? Do we, um, what do we tell people who then who? Begin to follow Christ or have questions or want to follow Christ about what do we, how do we help them to understand? Because really for us, no matter what, as the field worker, we're always outsiders. Best case scenario, 20 years, we get to know them and they see us as part of the community, but we're never going to be fully full members. So realistically, it's what making these decisions and then helping the person who you're actually looking to do the outreach to, they're the ones that have to bear the brunt. They're the ones that have to make these decisions. Because at some point you're coming off the field, and they're the ones that are going to stick around. And so you really, 
I think for us, there's a recognition that you always are going to be the outsider, but you do everything you can to remove unnecessary barriers and not get hung up on forms. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we tend to want to do that. We want to hold up certain forms and say we should do this or call ourselves that or use this particular Bible translation, things like that. And, you know, can we cut some of that out so that we can, you know, achieve achieve something bigger? So it's probably more, it's a bigger question that I can answer in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer because we're already over. Lord God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for this evening, uh, just for the class and the great questions and just interaction. And we just pray that uh, as we come to a close this semester, the next couple of weeks, that you would help us to correlate some of this information and then give us opportunities to interact with our Muslim neighbors and friends and coworkers. Uh, we ask this uh, to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah.